0: And April of last year was a a bit of a boiling point, for myself at least. It was like, I cannot sit here and look at my screen anymore and just intake all of this terrible information. I need, I gotta be able to do something about it. I think if you're someone who grows up with food, if you grow up with security, then you think to yourself that this can't happen to you or there's a major barrier between you and them. We kind of set out with the mission of, okay, let's just find one farm that can give us one chunk of food and move it to one food bank.
1: Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Padia Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us, Agent Riley co-founder of The Farming Project, Harvesting Hope. Welcome Aiden.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: As we record this episode, the pandemic is still not over and tragically still looms on our heads. It has highlighted so many of the problems that exist in our world, the disparity between incomes, climate change, and food insecurity. But there existed food insecurity even before the pandemic, right? In the United States, what were the food insecurity levels?
0: Yeah, according to certain reports by Feeding America, who's a leading nonprofit in food insecurity, we're looking at one in six families in the United States before the pandemic who were food insecure. And food insecure is kind of a uh, whitewashed term for hunger. I mean, it essentially just means you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. And that's very much a reality for that many people in the US.
1: And how do we compare to the other so-called developed countries?
0: That's kind of the whole thing that FarmLink is looking at is, you know, the United States being the wealthiest country in the world, you would expect there to be, you know, a land of surplus and opportunity and everyone is fed, a land of like milk and honey, but it's not the case. Mm -hmm. We rank far down the list compared to other developed countries in regards to how many families we have that are dependent on food banks, how many families we have that are dependent on welfare checks. And of course, that was all just only exacerbated when the pandemic hit.
1: So what do you tell the people who say these are lazy people? That's why they don't have the money. They are not working hard as other people in this country are. And um, why should we be responsible for their misfortune?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think the last year has put that kind of opinion into perspective for many people who held it. And what I mean by that is you saw disaster crisis scenarios, in which case, for example, let's say half of a small town in Maryland, I'm just speaking figuratively, worked for Boeing. And then due to this crisis, Boeing had to lay off 5% of its employees and many came from that town. Then suddenly people who had even had stable jobs, had families, and had reliability, suddenly do not have any of those things. And that has been the case with so many people that we've spoken to who have depended on food banks. They're not put in that scenario from years of poor decisions necessarily. It can be in some cases, in extreme cases, an overnight completely unforeseen event that changes everything for them. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're someone who grows up with food, if you grow up with security, then you think to yourself that this can't happen to you or there's a major barrier between you and them. And I think everyone should be humbled a little bit to understand that that's not necessarily the case, not even in the United States.
1: In the pandemic, the kids, would affect it even more because often many of the meals the kids got in their schools, their breakfast and lunch, most likely got the meals in the school. So now that they were home, it also put an additional burden on the families, which were already fragile.
0: Absolutely. Completely. You're you're right. You're completely right. We've talked to uh, so many families who, yeah, they were dependent on their children going to school and getting a, a lunch of some sorts, food of some sorts for Like you said, breakfast and lunch. And when that goes away in kids at home, let's say you have four children and you work a job, even if you're working that job from home, to be able to provide and go to the grocery store and that much more to your own schedule, you know, we're seeing a absolute shortage of time on behalf of parents, and that can lead to a a host of issues. But it's absolutely the case. I mean, if you have four children and you're working a job, how are you expected to make twelve meals a day? It borders on impossible.
1: In our collective memory, we have the image of the serpentine cars outside food banks. You know, even as I say this, it's hard because that vision that we saw on TV, on media, on the newspapers, it's kind of etched and you're only 21 years old, right? And what you are trying to do, you and your co-founder, James Kanoff, are trying to do is pretty commendable. How did you guys start this?
0: We started it about a year ago and it was pretty much just with the effort, reading articles about food waste. And specifically, New York Times was doing a major story on uh, farmers having to dump food due to contracts being slashed at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that's farmers who supplied, you know, food to UCLA, which what I live next to, or Brown University, where I go. That's thousands and thousands of meals that were previously accounted for that are no longer accounted for. And they can't pay to store that food, specifically produce and dairy and milk. That refrigeration costs money and they don't have the time to do it. So they're throwing it out. And to juxtapose that with images of, like you said, these serpentine lines of cars going around food banks, which is happening simultaneously, felt extremely, to put it coyly, felt very silly because these felt like two issues that could help solve each other. So That's what we set out trying to do. We kind of set out with the mission of, okay, let's just find one farm that can give us one truck of food and move it to one food bank, which was what we picked was the one that him and I, James and I grew up volunteering at in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we said, we don't know anything about agriculture and we don't know anything about freight or, and we don't know that much about the rising level of food insecurity right now. I'm pretty sure we're smart enough to figure out how we can get one truck of this surplus food away from the dump and instead to this food bank. And we cold called farms, hundreds of them.
1: So how did you and James meet?
0: Uh, James and I have known each other since middle school. I moved to middle schools and in sixth grade we met. We became really close friends along with my twin brother and a couple other friends. We had a little friend group in... By the time we got to high school, we went to separate high schools, but we started making films together, short little films that we'd submit to our high school film festivals. Mm -hmm. And that kind of grew into college when we decided, okay, let's start making documentaries, which is what we were both really interested in, wanting to tell the story of people who lived outside of the bubble that we grew up in, in Los Angeles. We made two documentaries together throughout college, and that was all put on hold, of course, right at the start of the pandemic.
1: So you and James put your heads together and said, let's get one farmer on board. Yeah. How many phone calls did you have to make to get that one farmer on board? Was it fairly easy? Because, you know, farmers were throwing their produce away and there is this good cause. Two young gentlemen are coming and asking them, was it very easy to get them on board?
0: It was not very easy. It was difficult, I think, because we didn't even have a name yet. We didn't know anything about them and they didn't know anything about us and I didn't know anything about their issues. So they're at a time of, of high stress. The last thing they wanted was someone, some kid calling their phone and saying, hey, let me take your load of potatoes that you're going to send to the dump and we're going to bring it to a food bank. We often had about a minute before we could maybe get hung up on. So we would maybe made 150, 200 calls before getting an answer
1: that requires a lot of resilience and passion right yeah because it's easy to get disenchanted
0: yeah it it requires both of those things but it also requires a bunch of a lot of time which is what all that we had you know last year. i had nothing to do besides sit there and twiddle my thumbs all day a school had been canceled all of my other projects been put on hold and i just couldn't shake the feeling that this was something that could work if we could just get past the answering machine of some of these farmers. So it was a lot of phone calls, but it wasn't a lot of time. It was, we did this over the course of one or two days. I mean, within three days, I think we had our first delivery. So we we moved very quickly.
1: And it was important. The speed and the urgency was an important part because people were starving. People were going hungry and you were dealing with perishables. So I'm glad you were able to reach somebody very quickly. Do you remember the moment that you picked up and you dropped off at the food bank? Yeah. When was that? Do you remember the date?
0: April 16th. And uh, I do remember the first delivery. It was not that long ago. It was just over a year ago. And uh, I'm never going to forget it because it was an incredibly unique experience. I had to go rent a U-Haul from downtown Los Angeles because we had no other truck or service that would do it, essentially. And the farmer we were speaking to was just outside LA. And he said, I have about 13,000 eggs, but I have no way to get them to you. You can have them if you can get them. And so he rented a U-Haul the night before, drove it on the 405 freeway, loaded up all those eggs in the back, and then drove it to the food bank maybe half an hour, 45 minutes away as they were bouncing around in the back of the truck. And I'd never driven a U-Haul, let alone one with 13,000 eggs in the back. So it was memorable. But more than that, once we dropped them off and delivered and put them in and the food bank said, thank you, and we're going to use these and this is going to be super helpful. It was a proof of concept. It was like, wow, being this persistent, even if we're kind of being dumb about it, which is what we thought we were at the time, it actually might work. Let's try another one.
1: So did you deliver all these eggs to one food bank or several?
0: We split it up between two food banks in Santa Monica, Westside Food Bank and then another one.
1: Often the food banks have food drives, right? And they ask you to put out your cans. And I would actually almost always feel bad to put out a canned goods because you want people to eat fresh food, you know, not just can something just canned two years ago. Yeah. But what you're doing is incredible because often in food banks, people open a bunch of canned soup and I'm not generalizing, but it is easier because you're working with volunteers to do that sort of a cooking. How did these food banks take now the fresh food that you're giving? Did they have the means to use it?
0: Yeah, it differs from food bank to food bank. You know, if you do research on food situation in the United States, a major issue is not just that people aren't getting enough food. It's more even that people aren't getting the right types of food. And uh, that has to do with certain food banks who are doing the best they can getting large donations of processed packaged food, right? They can only give what is donated to them. And oftentimes that's what it is. So what we'll do is we'll go and speak to a food bank and let's say they're in Oregon and uh, let's say it's onion and potato harvesting season, which is what you'll see a lot right now. Then all the food banks in and around Oregon might be overloaded with onions and potatoes and not need any. Mm -hmm. The ones in Southern California maybe have none, uh, even though they do have infrastructure and have the refrigeration. So it's about paying attention and uh, not thinking one size fits all, speaking to the food banks and getting them what they need. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you give a food bank 40,000 pounds of produce or eggs or milk, but they don't have refrigeration, this is going to make their lives more difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a risk there if you don't pay attention.
1: In talking about the right kind of food, uh, my daughter, when she was in college in her class, she had a friend who had been essentially homeless most of his life. And the first time he had a chance to eat berries was as a freshman in college. He was fed. He was fine. He was bright enough to get into an Ivy League college. But like you say, people do their best and often it doesn't give them the right and proper kind of food. Exactly. So, how do you balance that? The onions in Oregon, How do you get them to Santa Monica for say, for instance?
0: Yeah, you know, thankfully, we're not driving the trucks ourselves anymore. <laughs> I don't think that was sustainable. So what we did is we went out on a limb and we asked Uber Freight, who's the freight branch of Uber. We kind of talked ourselves up and made it seem like we were this big nonprofit, even though we were only two weeks old, and we said, can you guys donate some of your freight to us? Uh, we're using it to get food to people who need it right now. And they said, yes. And so for those first six months of FarmLink, we uh, had a professional freight organization, Uber Freight, with professional drivers and all the right standards and protocols moving our food. And that allowed us to you know expand beyond just LA and move those potatoes from Oregon down to Southern California. It gave us a radius of a thousand miles that we could reach. And that was just huge because then we could move food that was being grown in one region to a region that wasn't able to have that at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, it allowed us as well to do it overnight. So we didn't need to stop and refrigerate it and et cetera. We could just zip it right down to The food bank storage as quickly as possible so that stuff stayed fresh and uh, i think it's a big source of pride for us to be able to to do that i mean if you look at our our metrics we do move you know mainly staples like potatoes and onions as i mentioned many times but then we also mix in things like berries in there and different fruits and kales and more exotic greens and uh the more we can diversify the better Again, without rambling, we can also understand that certain people maybe never have used kale before and don't know what recipes to make with it. So we're, we toy around with the idea and are developing, okay, then how can we include recipes or easy to use, easy to learn ways to use the stuff that we're handing out. So we're trying to constantly be conscious about these things because like I said, one size doesn't fit all.
1: So did you have to pay for Uber service or now?
0: For a good chunk of the year, they donated their services and we didn't have to pay. Now we use various types of freight services and we do pay for it. But we're moving now towards more trying to get food banks connected directly, food banks that have their own trucks, so that we don't even need to be the middleman in between anymore. And our main service is to provide the connection and then try to remove ourselves from the equation so they're sustainable and more independent.
1: How much food was getting wasted during the pandemic?
0: During the pandemic, hard to put an exact amount. I mean, we're still just not coming out of it. Early stages, when you were seeing contracts being slashed and crisis mode, I mean, you're we were talking hundreds of millions of pounds of food and what that would look like, if you've seen any photos or if you're able to go and see one of these farms, for some listeners maybe were able to, it's like just mountains of produce, 100 plus feet high, piled in a shed on a farmer's land that he, isn't, that, that he or she does not know what to do with. If you've never seen, I'd encourage you to go look it up. I mean, it really puts to scale our agricultural system
1: why is that right so if i was a farmer i have tomatoes and now the restaurants are closed so people are cooking at home why couldn't i just send more tomatoes to the grocery store
0: well the reasons that there were surplus are are innumerable but an interesting example is the other day i was talking to a farmer and he provided uh he had a surplus of blue potatoes if you ever had those Love them. Yeah. They're amazing. Why do you have so many of these? These are highly sought after, highly valuable. And he said, because JetBlue is having less flights. And he was selling those potatoes to JetBlue, who was using them to make those tarot chips that they sell. Something like that. Just airlines flying less flights amounts in like mountains of blue potatoes somewhere. One of the reasons they can't sell the grocery stores, they go put them somewhere else. Because you'd think, I mean, this is kind of uh, counterintuitive. Everybody needs food. It's valuable stuff. Why is it so hard to get? It's about money and it's about labor shortages and it's about just refrigeration costs. The logistical nightmare of having to figure out where this large of a shipment of something can go when it's unplanned for is undoable. On the farmer's end, these people that we talk to are working 18 hours a day some days and constantly looking forward five, six months from now and they simply do not have the time to be able to go schedule individual deliveries that go wrong and they hate, hate, hate having to throw out the food. They've, you know, worked their ass off growing it, but they simply, you know, it it becomes the only viable choice for them at a certain point when they're faced with their backs up against the wall.
1: So what I'm hearing is that this efficient supply chain system that we had created. Yes. From potato to terra chips on our next flight. Yeah. And a slight disruption in it kind of just had a ripple effect.
0: Yeah, that's been my experience. That's what I've learned from talking to them is that it's so massive. You work at such scale. There's hundreds of millions of pounds of food that have gone to waste during the pandemic. But when you're talking about on-farm waste, food that's grown on the farm and never even leaves it before going straight to the dump or being tilled back over. Mm -hmm. On a normal year, that's 20 billion pounds. That scale is unimaginable. And just a tiny fraction, a little hiccup here or there, results in behemoth amounts of, of food going to waste. It's just a blip for these you know large-scale farms and large-scale manufacturers and distributors that are dealing with it. 20 billion.
1: So you're saying there are 20 billion pounds of food that is wasted in a non-pandemic time.
0: Yeah. To clarify, there's nearly 100 billion pounds. There's about 80 billion pounds of food wasted a year total. Mm-hmm. But on farm, talking about non-food scraps or restaurant waste or anything like that, just stuff that is just grown but simply cannot be picked due to labor shortages or is misshapen or is uh, contracts are slashed, various reasons, they, were, they grew too much because the weather was better than predicted. That leads to, to that number, 20 billion pounds a year.
1: So how many states... Have you expanded to?
0: We work in 48 states, almost all 50. And we work in Mexico.
1: And in Mexico. Yeah. That's pretty commendable. How many hours do you and James work all the time?
0: Yeah, all the time. But now, uh, you know, it's a combination of the thing that I always try to talk about is how big the team is. We're There's almost 200 of us. All volunteers. All volunteers, including myself. Nobody's made a cent off of this. And there are almost 200 people, a majority of which are putting in time like this is a full-time job. I mean, that's the expectation and that's kind of what's needed. Mm So, you know, James and I have been working our butts off for ever since we started this, but so have our Ben and Will Collier, who are the other founders and Max Goldman and and Jordan Hartzell and Stella Delp and the list goes on and on and on of people who have just committed to this like you wouldn't believe, you know, joined the project and didn't stop. And I think that's the only reason we've been able to be be as productive as we are. We've taken people who are going to be work at banking jobs, work in media jobs. They were going to make music. They were going to be salespeople, whatever. And they all came together to create this amalgam of uh, young people who are one common mission.
1: So you're 21 and James is 21. All of you are about in that age, right? 21, 22. Yeah. So this generation, if I'm allowed to use this word, is really woke. But this is a generation two years ago were called snowflakes when you were protesting about different things. And the, and the parents who raised you were called helicopter parents, right? Yeah. But it turned out all right. With young people like you, you know, we've seen the marches, the protests, the changes that have happened in our country in the last year, year and a half, in very, very trying times. What changed your generation? What made you what you, what you are?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think we've been through a lot. And I think we have more exposure than any generation before us and better tools for communication. And so does everyone. But when you kind of grow up with that, by the time I was 14, 13 years old, I was able to get a pretty good grasp of inequality around the world just from my cell phone. Even if you grew up in a bubble, you had a serious notion that bubble wasn't the whole world. I think that's been, you know, in many ways, something that's been to the disadvantage of our our generation only in terms of our own social development and and how, you know, we're going to look like 30 years from now, but it's also been to the advantage because people want to broaden their scope and learn more. And that's kind of what all this has been a response to. It's like we have the information. We understand. We can see a lot of what people are going through, people who are thousands of miles away. Uh, It's right there in front of our faces. That's daily intake of the situation that people are facing. And it makes you kind of feel like, okay, what can I do about it? And April of last year was a, a bit of a boiling point. For myself, at least, it was like, I cannot sit here and look at my screen anymore and just intake all of this terrible information. I got to be able to do something about it because I feel privileged to not be affected by it right now. So how am I going to look back on this in 30, 40 years and remember it? Because I am going to remember it. And how am I going to remember my place in it?
1: So how are you guys getting funded right now? What's your source of funding?
0: Our source of funding is, um, about 70, 30, 30% individual donors from across the U S mm-hmm. people who see us on the news or people who see our website and decide, Oh, I like those guys. i want to give them money. And about 70% foundations that we work with and partnerships as well.
1: Did you guys have to write grants for the foundation or?
0: Yeah, we do every day you fill out grants and write, and then hopefully you can make relationships and get to know these foundations better and they get to trust you and you get to be brought into their fold. But
1: I'm looking at what you do long term, right? So, how do you think you'll sustain?
0: It's a good question. I think as we come out of the pandemic, the world is obviously changing, returning. An organization that relied on 200 full time volunteers might not be something that's sustainable anymore. Mm -hmm. This is no longer like a pandemic project or a summer project. It's something that we're going to try to make last for 10 or 15 years. I think the way we do that is by having long term farm partners, not just searching around and finding farms who have surplus, but farms that in non-crisis mode, have are generating millions and millions of pounds that they're sending to the dump and working with them. So that's like, let's fix your supply chain. Let's make sure that you can be carbon neutral by, let's say, 2030. And making those commitments and starting in concentrated areas around the United States, even that means drawing back in from 48 states to saying, okay, let's just fix your supply chain in California and make sure that your one facility that's producing 30 million pounds of kale every, you know, month, let's say let's get that constantly routed to food banks and remove ourselves from the equation i think that is when we can start to become something that requires less volunteers to survive but can still be an opportunity for young people to come and help
1: also most businesses now have CSR component to it, corporate social responsibility component to it. Yeah. And maybe the farmers will also take upon themselves to do some part of it. I'm not saying they don't do it, but maybe with your guidance, it can be channeled what they do with the excess food that they grow.
0: Yeah, I think if you just kind of look around, you see that nowadays corporations kind of are forced to respond to the will of the people. You know, uh, when you see social movements happen, you see corporations respond. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think with our new administration and with the way the world is going, that they're going to start picking up more and more on things like sustainability. I, I think this, that's been something that has been omnipresent, but it's sort of taken the backseat because people don't know how they can play a personal role in it. And that's more coming to the forefront now in terms of individual responsibility for sustainability and corporate responsibility for sustainability. And we want to be in the, find ourselves in the crux of that because we believe that what we do very, very much impacts each of those things and represents a sort of millennial, Gen X, whatever effort to uh, say enough is enough and make some structural change. And that's why I think that in 10 or 15 years from now, you can find yourself much, much more ability to do something about it rather than just intake the bad information.
1: And one of the goals that you had on your website is to put yourself out of business. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool.
0: Did you like that slogan?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah. So, if there's a farmer out there who wants to get connected with you, how do they do it?
0: Well, they can go on our, our website. It's very simple. And you can say, go and contact us and it says, I'm a farmer. And there's a form they can fill out and it takes us straight to that.
1: And the website is the FarmLink Project, right?
0: Yeah, www.farmlinkproject.org, or just type in FarmLink Project into your your search bar, and uh, it should come up. Or you can email contact at contact@farmlinkproject.org, and we'll get right back to
1: you. Both you and James were the recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor for the year 2021. It's a citizen's honor award for outstanding Americans. In general, whom is it given to?
0: There's a couple that are handed out each year. Um, There's, for example, Active Valor Award and Service Act Award and uh, Organizational Award for Service. That's not the exact title, but I think there's about five or six that they give out each year, and it's generally to mostly, I would say if you look at the history, is given to veterans or people who are involved in aiding veterans and military-related efforts, essentially. And this year, it was interesting that they chose members like FarmLink, who have nothing to do with the military, but in a similar sort of crisis or fight, put their efforts toward the pandemic. So it was a total surprise to get that award. But how did they find you? Not, I actually have never asked, but they found us back in August and they reached out to us. Uh, I think one of the members of their committee just saw us on the news or something like that and recommended.
1: Pretty cool. Was it an exciting moment?
0: Oh, very exciting. They told us back in August that they were nominating us. And they said there was like 50 or 60 or something plus nominees. And so I kind of just forgot about it. because I was like, that's cool. We got nominated. But then suddenly by March, they said there's 30. And then by April, there's 20. And, you know, all the way down until suddenly they told us we won. And the whole team was just like, extremely fired up about it. And they're going to go do a ceremony in July, and it's a lot of fun. It's not why we do it, but it was still fun, and it's validating.
1: Yeah, it's affirmation to all your effort and uh, what you and your team has done. And you just graduated from Brown. Congratulations. Thank you. What did you graduate in?
0: I studied uh, international comparative politics. That's basically, it's poli science, It's part of the po- political science department. That's what I love learning about, and... It was very relative to at the time when i thought i wanted to be a documentary filmmaker
1: what are your plans for the future
0: good question i have no idea um i'm going to be working for farmlink full time trying to get us an office and now that we come out of the virtual world giving us like a real brick and mortar sort of institution and people can come by and come to the farmlink office i think that'd be an exciting thing for an organization that's only ever been on the the computer Mm -hmm. and i'm going to stay there as long as it takes to until i feel like i'm not needed anymore to uh have the thing run. Like I said, quickly went from something that was a pandemic project, a summer project, a crisis project to something that it's like, okay, there's absolutely no way that we can leave this thing until we can make sure it's going to exist and stand on its own for many years.
1: On that really uplifting note, I wish the whole FarmLink team uh, all the best and wishing you all the success. Thank you. You're listening to Mindful Businesses with Vidya Iyer. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. Remember to rate and review us. To learn more about this and our other episodes, check out our website, mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two, Share it with one friend. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.